dear friends that we first met back in about, oh, 1988 or so. Uh, these friends uh, were a childless couple who desperately wanted children and yet couldn't seem to have any children. And we were fortunate enough to have them actually adopt our three children as theirs. And they would love on our kids. Uh, I can remember early on Dan taking John and Jeremy up to the mountains and the Adirondacks to climb the mountains and to do things that maybe we wouldn't normally have time to do because we were so busy in the midst of ministry. Uh, we moved here, of course, in 1991. And a couple of years later, we discovered that this couple were able to adopt two little babies. One came directly from the hospital and the other one came very early on from the couple that were giving them up for adoption. And you need to get this, and please understand this. These were a couple of people who were desperate to have children. So I promise you that when they got these two little boys brought into their home, they lavished them with love and acceptance. They, they weren't just taking in some needy children. They wanted them as their very own sons. Some time went by, and one of the sons began to exhibit some antisocial behavior. He actually became a danger to his other brother and to his mother. They were missionaries at the time in Indonesia. They had to come home in order to do all kinds of testing and evaluations. And they found that he had what was called attachment disorder syndrome, which meant that he could not find it easy to connect to people, but especially those people within his own family. They did everything they knew. They went to different treatments. They went to therapies, to counselors. They did everything they knew. But in the end, they had to place this young man by that time he was a young man, into a group home where he could have the kind of 24-hour care that he desperately needed. And actually today, he's doing much, much better, for which we're grateful. <coughs> what I want to talk to you about this morning is something that I see in the church that, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call attachment disorder syndrome. It's where people come into a church much like this, come into the family of God, but for whatever reason, never find it easy to feel like they're a part. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about this morning. We sang a, a scripture this morning. You maybe didn't know it was a scripture. It's from 2 Corinthians 3, and it says this. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's another translation that I actually like better. And it says, where the Spirit is Lord, there is freedom. Now, how many of you admit that you wish you had a little bit more freedom in your life? Can I see your hands? I do. I need more freedom from the stuff, from my thought life, from the baggage of my past, from bondages of sin, just from feelings that can overwhelm me at times. I need more freedom. But I, I'm here today to tell you, we are not going to know the level of freedom that we want and need until we encounter and wrestle with this whole idea of the grace of God. We will never know true freedom from the bondages of sin and the fear that comes with that. We'll never know real freedom from the lies that bombard our minds until we encounter and experience God's grace. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Luke 15. Luke 15, uh, it's going to be up on the screen for you in a minute. 
Luke 15 is a story of a young man who was on a journey to understand grace for himself. And as we consider the story, I want to start out, though, by asking you two questions. In fact, if you take notes, you could write these questions down real quick. There's just two questions I want you to consider as we go through this whole story. The first question is this. What is it that you really know to be true about God? And maybe if you're not a fast writer, a friend this week met with me and uh, gave me this wording that I liked. I hadn't considered it personally, but I, I like the wording. And you could say it this way, God is dot, dot, dot. Tell me what you know to be true about God. Not what your parents told you or what maybe even I told you or another pastor. Tell me what you personally believe to be true about God. And the second question is this. What do you believe to be true about yourself? So again, you might say, number one, God is. Number two, I am. What do you believe to be true about yourself? Knowing about God is crucial. But I've lived long enough, and I think some of you in this room would concur, that knowing about God is crucial, but knowing who you are in God is equally crucial. Because that's where our peace comes from. Luke 15 is a story of a dad and two sons. Mom's not mentioned in this story at all. I don't know why. I don't know if perhaps she has passed away. But we do know we have dad and two adult sons. And the youngest son comes to dad and basically says this. Dad, you're taking way too good a care of yourself these days. Um, Dad, you're pretty well off. And I know that based upon our tradition, I'm going to get an inheritance from you, but you're taking way too long to die. So would you get busy and either die quicker, or would you give me my inheritance early? So this was a son who was selfish and arrogant and rude and unkind, but that's the picture that is presented here. But one of the important things for you to realize that in their culture, in Luke 15, in the culture in which Jesus lived, it was anticipated that children would take care of their parents as their parents aged. When they would get to a point where they would receive their inheritance, it was expected that out of that inheritance, you would take care of your parents. So this son wasn't only saying to his dad, I don't care about you, I want your money, you can die for all I care. He's also saying, I'm unwilling to use anything that you give me to help me to take care of you, as is expected. This was a son who was the height of uh, just complete selfishness. The story that we're going to look at, we're going to pick up in verse 17, if you want to look at it. Verse 17, the son actually takes his inheritance and it says that he squandered his inheritance. And when we pick up the story, the son has been eating corn husks with the pigs, which by the way was a pretty big no-no for any Jewish boy of that day. But here he is foraging for corn husks, not corn, corn husks with the pigs. And we pick it up in verse 17. Verse 17, by the way, is a verse that ought to give hope to every parent in this room. It's one of my favorite verses as my kids were growing up. It says this, When he, the son, 
came to his senses, or another translation says, when he came to himself. In other words, he came to who he really was supposed to be. So he's confronted with this. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? So he says to himself, I'll come up with a plan. I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. And I know we've looked at this before, but remember, in order for his father to see him from a great way off, it's very likely that the father had a daily tradition of going up to the highest part of his property and standing there and looking 360 degrees every single day for a period of time, looking and hoping that he would see his son. And this day, he saw him, it says, a great way off. And his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I want to suggest to you that this is the place of conflict we all come to when we're finally confronted with the grace of God and our behavior, our thinking processes, how we feel about things in life. Inside of us, something arises that says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of your grace. Um, You've perhaps come to Christ. You're sitting here in this room. You've come to Christ and you've received forgiveness of sins. And you know that you have eternal life. You know that. But when you live your life and you fail, which we all do, even as believers, we all fall often. And we're confronted with the grace of God. There's something inside of us that says, I'm not worthy. And I have good news and I have bad news for you. The bad news is, you're right. You're not worthy. But the good news is, you're right. You're not worthy. But the scripture tells us, it's not dependent upon our worthiness. It's dependent upon His. And He tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, He has made you accepted in the blood. Or He has made you worthy because he took all of Jesus' righteousness and put it in your account. We pick it up in verse 22. The father said to his servants, not even responding to his son's rehearsed speech, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is where the rubber meets the road of grace. There isn't a one of us here that would consciously think, no, I don't want that kind of grace. I choose judgment, not grace. But here's that thing, that that as much as you might choose grace, you can't have and enjoy grace unless you first wrestle with those two questions I asked you at the beginning. 
Who is God to you? What is God like? And who are you in him? Over these last two weeks, we've dealt pretty much at length about the first question, who God is when it comes to his feelings for us, his heart towards us, his grace towards us. Today, I want us to consider that second question primarily. Who are you? And the way in which I want to look at this message, in fact, the title of my message is very simply this, Orphans, Slaves, and Sons. Orphans, Slaves, and Sons. The young man in the story was a son, but he thought and he lived like an orphan in his own home. He tried to throw away his own birthright. What he had done to his dad was so vile, so detestable that according to their culture, his dad, seeing him in the distance, had the right to run at him yelling the whole time, Kazaza, Kazaza, which means cut off from me forever. That was a Greek legal term that said, you have no right back here. Kazaza. Cut off. This son knew as he was walking back home, he was an orphan by his choice, but because what he had done was so bad, he no longer thought of himself as a son or an orphan. He thought of himself as a slave. That's what he said. He said, make me like one of your hired servants. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He thought to himself, maybe, just maybe, if I grovel enough, on heaven's scale of righteousness, maybe that will earn me a point or two. Maybe if I agree to come to church every Sunday. And maybe I'll even join a life group. And you know, that's sacrificing a lot. Because if I come to life group, I'm going to miss the voice. That's got to be worth five points. Maybe if I do enough, that will make up for what I have done wrong. And all that does, that kind of thinking keeps us involved with some sort of graceless abacus. We're trying to measure ourselves on this scale. And I'm here to tell you, you will never measure up based upon that. It's only ever when you lay hold of His grace, His love, that He, as much as this couple that I told you about at the beginning, wanted those two boys, God wanted you far more. That He would give His very life for you. So my question this morning is, are you living like an orphan? Or are you living like a slave? Or are you living like a child of God? I've used the term sons because that's the most common refrain that falls within the story because we're talking about two sons. But it's equally clear that it relates to you as a daughter. How are you living your lives? The first group I want us to look at real quickly are the orphans. And I, I believe the church is full of orphans. Uh, our American culture is full of orphans. I, I googled it and I found out there is 18.58 million single-parent homes in the U.S., whether through divorce, death, or choice. And children are left in those situations trying to figure out where do they fit in. Who are they? They actually have come up with a name for the phenomena that we're facing in our nation of single-parent homes, and it's called this, the lost decade. 
because they believe it's about a period of time, a 10-year period, where what you are as a person, who you are, actually becomes established, and children are missing out on it. It's the lost decade. Kids who don't know who they are. What's worse is orphans don't believe they really fit in anywhere. They come, but they don't feel like they fit in. They tend to stand on the outskirts, on the periphery, because they never feel like they quite fit in that group. Orphans don't believe in their heart of hearts that this thing called grace really works for them. It works for others, but they're different somehow. It doesn't work for them. They're not normal. In fact, uh, if there's anything you write in your notes, it would be this, under orphans. Orphans live for love rather than from love. Orphans live for love rather than from love. The second group, perhaps the biggest group in the church, are the slaves. Slaves are the most committed people in the whole world because they believe they're their position in the family is based upon how much they do, how good they do. Am I doing enough? Superlative words like greater, bigger, better. It's always the more, 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 enough. Is, is what I'm doing enough for me to find a place in the home? In your notes, you could mark down this. Slaves are achievers rather than receivers. Slaves are achievers rather than receivers. Many, even some of you, would reasonably ask, well, aren't we supposed to do good works? Isn't that what God asks of us? Uh, and I'd say, yes, of course. But our performance doesn't earn us a place in the family. In fact, I wrote this for myself. I'm sure you could come up with better words, but I said this. It's not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are that should determine what you do. But I wonder how that is for many of us. Although we might never say it this way, many of us live our lives believing that Jesus came to earth and died, gave his life in order to clean me up and make me a better person. Now, does God change us? Yes, I believe God does change us. But that's not why he came. That's not why he gave his life for you. He gave his life for you because he loved you and he wanted you and his family. It's not based upon how good you get in life. It's based upon his love for you. Now, personally, I think good behavior is better than bad behavior. So if you're going to make a choice, choose good. I think that's a good thing to do. But I don't believe that's why Jesus came for you, to make you gooder. I think he came for you because he loved you and he wanted you for his family more than this couple did, even these two little babies for their family. Uh, our three children, uh, John and Jeremy and Jennifer, were born to us. They weren't adopted. But we have some dear friends over in Leicester, New York, uh, Eric and Debbie Scott. They adopted several children. I don't even know how many. I have a couple of numbers in my mind, and I won't guess, and I didn't contact them ahead of time. But they adopted several children, five, six, seven, something like that. And uh, they went through a lengthy, expensive, hard, grueling process to get each of those children to be adopted into their family. 
And Eric told me at one point that every single time they would have to finally appear before the judge where the judge would determine, he would make a proclamation that those children are now adopted into the family. And when they would leave the courtroom that day with that child, they would leave with two things. Each child would leave two things. They would leave with this sense of a birth certificate and the birth certificate would have their first and middle name on it. Every child, that birth certificate had a first and a middle name. But the second thing it had was it had a last name, and that last name was Scott. Each one of them were a Scott. They were a Scott in the family every bit as much as John and Jeremy and Jennifer are Lonnevilles in our family. And i got to tell you, having talked to Eric and Debbie a lot over the years, there were days when those children did not act the way their parents wanted them to. Probably in the same way that there were days when your children didn't act the way you wanted them to. But on the good days when they did behave, and on the bad days when they misbehaved, they were still Scots. That can't change. In fact, there was a time, it has changed now, unfortunately, but there was a time in New York State when if you adopted a child, you could never unadopt that child. They were yours forever. They were Scots through and through. It's the same with my kids, by the way. When John was a good boy growing up, he was my son. When John was a bad boy, he was still Cairn's son. <laughs> and although John, through the years, Pastor John has told you stories of his adventures that sometimes make his mom cringe in the back there, tell you things that he did that we didn't know about, probably, thankfully, we didn't know about it at the time, even though that's true of Pastor John, you have to know it's equally true of Jeremy and Jennifer. I guarantee that each of them had their own issues. They each did stuff. But there was absolutely nothing that they could ever do that would stop them from being my son, my daughter. They're mine. And God feels the same way about you. And isn't it a sad thing that in the house of God you live like a slave rather than a child of God and what he has provided for you? Slaves are always living from one day to the next, one moment to the next, wondering if what they're doing is enough. Is it good enough? Is it spiritual enough? Is it big enough? All to try to keep their place in the family. And I speak about this being the largest group because i got to confess that for me, much of my life, I have lived as a slave. So I know something about this mindset. Oh, you can cover it up, as I do, and you can spiritualize it and call it a good Christian work ethic. But at heart, often it's born out of a sense of slavery than a sense of sonship. The sad thing is, that when I would be in that mode of working harder and harder and I would give myself to it, it still inside never felt like it was enough. And then I would get mad at God as if God was unfair to expect even more of me. Here I am, I'm doing my best. What do you want of me, God? And yet the truth is God never asked it of me in the first place. But I'd be mad at Him when it was me living like a slave. Orphans, Slaves and sons. The awareness of sonship, I'm using that term again, gender-free. The awareness of sonship can come like a revelation bolt of lightning. 
I have watched people change their life and how they think about themselves in a split second when God shows up. But for many, it takes years of processing it, of learning to walk in it more and more and more. For me, it's been gradual. It's been baby steps all along the way. Learning to trust God more and more that he really did choose me and he really did want me. Paul says in Galatians 4, in verse 4, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Orphans don't feel like they fit in anywhere. And slaves feel like they have to work hard to fit in. But sons get to enjoy the Father's property. Sons get to enjoy the Father's presence. Sons get to enjoy the Father's pleasure. I want you to hear this. Everything in the heart of God is set on extracting from your heart the residue of slavery and orphans. God wants you to know that you're his child. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He set his heart to pursue you. You might think you walk through a door that said, I choose, and you say, I choose God. When you walk with God for a little bit, you look back at that door and you see on it, chosen. God says, I chose you long before you knew anything about me. And I pursued you with my grace. <coughs> and when that happens, we begin, as Paul tells us in Galatians, to cry out, Abba, Father. Daddy, God. So my question to you this morning is, are you still living like an orphan? Wandering around, trying to find a place that you fit in where you can finally call it home. You, you go from church to church blaming the church for it, but the truth is, it's not the church, it's what's inside of your own heart and soul. You don't honestly feel like you fit anywhere. Or do you live like a slave, having to constantly perform to try to measure up? Or are you becoming more and more aware of the truth that you are a son or a daughter of God? I use that word become because that's the term that Jesus used in John chapter 1. He says this, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It was God's idea that you would call him dad. We don't do that because we feel like, well, that's being sacrilegious, isn't it? You know, when I got married uh, to Karen, she was Karen Edwards. When I met her, she was actually the receptionist at the window at Elam Bible Institute at the time. So she was the first girl I ever saw on campus. And uh, I had her father as my teacher. And at that time, we would call the teachers brother Johansson, brother, you know, whatever. So he was brother Edwards to me long before I started dating his daughter. 
He was Brother Edwards. He, he, he was Brother Edwards. And so when we started dating and then finally got married, he was Brother Edwards. And always Brother Edwards. I mean, he, he was too everything. He was too British, too proper, too smart, too wise, too everything for me to ever think of calling him dad. He was Brother Edwards to me. And maybe some of you here who are married have walked through some of that same stuff with your in-laws. What do you call them? God comes along and he says, I don't want there to be any doubt what I want you to call me. He says, I want you to call me dad. You're my child, and I wanted you. I came after you. We think in any week that we go through, well, it seems like I'm having one problem after another. Well, I, I, I say it to people often. Problems are not following you. Goodness and mercy is following you. That's what he promised. You might go through problems, but you are going through them. And yes, God can actually use those in your life for good because God's able to use good. Out of everything. But he pursued you. He wanted you. So what is true about God and what is true about you? Is he your dad? Are you his son or his daughter? For me personally, I like the fact that John and April, and Jeremy and Courtney, Jennifer and Pete, and Jocelyn and Natalie, Tessa and Jillian, Will and Maggie, and Caleb and Gabby and Izzy are all mine. They're mine. They will always be mine. There's nothing they can do to change that. They're mine. On their good days, they're mine. On their bad days, they're mine. They're mine. They don't have to earn a place in my heart because they already have it. In fact, if you want to get on my bad side really quickly, just come up against my wife or my kids and grandkids because they're mine. God wants you to hear the same thing from his heart today. That when he looks at you, he says, you're mine. I wanted you. I picked you particularly. Knowing everything about you already, knowing that you would have bad days, he still chose you. He wanted you. You are his child. You bear his name. You don't have to do anything to get, get there into his presence other than to believe it and to receive it. And that's the difference between law and grace. Slavery or orphanage and sonship. Would you stand with me? As we've been dealing this week especially, although we've known it forever, dealing with Tom and Myrna and the situation for the last couple of days, often we're left with the awkwardness of do we call them Tom's sons or their sons? Because by the time they married, the sons were already older. But the truth is, if you guys get together, I don't care what your background was, I don't care if you came from a divorce situation, and this is your second marriage, and there were kids on each side or one side, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, if there's truly love in your heart, they become yours. And God says, you've done a lot of stuff to mess up your life, but you're mine. And he's going to pursue you with his grace 
and he will not give up on that. He's not giving up on you. doesn't matter what you've done, what you think. He will not give up on you. Isn't that good news? God wanted you. Would you bow your heads? Father, I know through these weeks, uh, and I was kidding with someone recently about it, that in many ways, this series on grace has been more for me than anyone else, and I've probably enjoyed it more than anyone else. But my prayer, my hope, is that something that you have revealed to me that I can speak into the air in this place would make a difference in someone's life. And today, Father, help us to not live our lives afraid that we don't quite fit in, not sure if we're even wanted. Help us to not live any longer like we have to keep performing, hoping that maybe God will let us stay on the periphery at least. At least I'm in the family, even if I'm only on the edge. Help us to stop living that way. Instead, to live like a true son and daughter of God our Father, Abba. Father, as much as you have said to us, you love us, we want to say to you, we love you, Father. We love you. We're grateful for your love to us. We're grateful for your grace. Thank you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a rich day in the Lord, and I'll be with the Strassheim, so you guys enjoy handing out everything but the turkey. God bless you.